And it's Jamison Fink with another episode of Wine Without Worry. Wine Without Worry is brought to you by Wente Vineyards, America's oldest family-owned winery and California's first family of Chardonnay. You can visit them online at wentevineyards.com. And recently, I got the chance to go to Sicily on a pretty uh, magical and epic and amazing uh, wine tour and visit, uh, visiting vineyards and producers and eating and sampling, uh, all the things that Sicily has to offer. And one of the highlights of this trip was getting to meet uh, two people, Fran Di Savino and Bill Nesto. They are the authors of The World of Sicilian Wine and uh, a book that's the winner of the Andre Simone Drink Book Award for uh, 2013. And uh, I was so uh, taken by their passion for Sicily and getting to spend some time with them, I asked them to be on this show, and they are both joining me today. So uh, welcome, Fran and Bill. And um, my first question for you is, uh, I'm just intrigued about the title of the book, uh, The World of Sicilian Wine. Um, Tell me about why it's called, I mean, obviously, I know why it's called Sicilian wine, but the world. Uh, Is there something you're trying to convey about Sicily by calling it the world of Sicilian wine? Is that a deliberate, uh, uh, important distinction? It is deliberate. Uh, It is a world unto itself. It's an island, first of all, which makes it uh, intact, uh, unlike other regions of of, uh, Italy. And... uh, it, it has its own uh, culture, and uh, in terms of the climates and growing uh, expositions, uh, they vary from uh, flat, hot plains to high mountains, from volcanoes, volcanoes to islands. Um, everything is there. Um, there's, uh, uh, it, it's been uh, uh, traveled by different cultures throughout the centuries, and 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 so we wanted to get across the message that this is more than just a region of a country; it's a world unto itself. Also, Jameson, we wanted to convey to readers right from the start that this was not a typical wine guide; that we are really offering readers a multi-dimensional way to understand Sicily as a place through the medium of its wines by discussing history and culture, literature, art. So I think it really has, you know, several meanings in that way. Yeah, right. It's not a like a the, like a, a Zagat guide to it's not a list. It's a it's a book that takes into account uh, all the whole uh world, I mean, the world of Sicilian wine, culture, history, geography, uh, all these things, right? It's not like a uh, try these wines. Those are certainly wineries to visit and recommended, but it's more of a comprehensive overview of everything that touches the world of wine. Exactly. And it's really a story. Um, we tell it from the 8th century BC through kind of the, the modern uh, rebirth of the Sicilian wine industry. And, and we underline the fact uh, that uh, wine is not a commodity. It, it's really in this in the way we wrote about Sicilian wine. It's really a, a very important part of culture, and so we connect it to various aspects of culture as well as to climate and science. Well, take me back to the eighth century BC. Um, uh, I'm curious about the. I mean, what's the story of Sicilian wine from its beginning? What did you uncover in your in your travels and research? When Bill and I first went to Sicily in, in 2008, we were certainly aware of the kind of popular cultural narrative of the 20th century as told through the kind of Godfather trilogy of films. 
But at the same time, we were aware that from the time of Homer in the 8th century BC, when the Greeks first colonized eastern and southern Sicily, um, that there was a reputation of Sicily as a place that was wildly fertile, um, but at the time had not established a culture of wine, although there was botanic evidence of wild grape seeds. So really, we discovered both kind of a stereotype in Homer's Odyssey of a place that was capable of making beautiful wine but didn't have a culture of it, and really learned that it was the Greeks who brought an established culture of viticulture, winemaking, and really their, their culture of wine through the Greek Symposium, which was a party that took place after dinners involving song and literature. And so we really kind of told the story from that point on. Yeah, you know what was funny? I mean, I guess we have to mention the, the Godfather, but uh, the first night I was there, I walked into the restaurant where we were having dinner, and I opened the door and walked in, and the theme to the Godfather was playing. It was like something I couldn't even uh, I couldn't even make up. It was uh, it was uh, bizarrely uh, eerie and, and a little and a little thrilling in a way too. Wow, that that is amazing. I mean, we are clearly motivated to to reveal so much more beyond that popular cultural narrative. But as you as you experienced, it's hard to escape. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that we sort of discuss some of the uh, underpinnings of uh, the culture that the Godfather represents and related it to how it affected the wine industry in the sense, for instance, Marsala was a key product that was created really by Brit- by British merchants in the at the time of the French Revolution, the late 1700s. Uh, and uh, it grew and grew and grew until after the Risorgimento, which is the reunification, the unification of Italy in the 1860s and 70s. After that time, uh, because of the 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 sort of leftover groups of armed soldiers and uh, uh, local uh, uh, sort of rivalries, uh, uh, groups of uh, of, uh, it, it became very difficult for the British to do business, so they, they basically left the industry and, and, and uh, left it over to Sicilian and Italian businessmen. And uh, it had a big effect on the um, Marsala industry. It, it, it uh, began to go, go into decline uh, by the early uh, 1900s. So that's just one example of how uh, that culture affected um, the wine industry. And that was interesting that you mentioned um, Marsala or Mar- Marsala. Um, I don't know what the correct pronunciation is even. Uh, um, but um, uh, when I went there, I got to visit a producer and drink those wines. And they reminded me a lot of, uh, frankly, you know, like sort of people's relationship with sherry, where there'd be a bottle in the kitchen and when a recipe called for it, you'd pour out a couple of tablespoons and deglaze with it or add it to a sauce or a soup or something and, and you'd forget about it. Um, but I tasted some dry and semi-sweet versions that I thought were fantastic, like great sort of uh, aperitif wines and great food pairing wines. Uh, that was one of the big uh, surprises for me of the trip. Um, what, what's, the, uh, what's the perception of, of that wine in Sicily and, and outside of Sicily? Well, the perception of is it that particularly in the post-World War II period, um, it was marketed by... Um, basically Sicilian merchants as a cooking wine and uh, because they could sell, sell large quantities of it and and what was forgotten and went into sort of uh, disuse was, was the finer 
um, types of Marsala, and I think the, the very the purest type is called Virgine, um, which has no additives at all. It's just uh, basic local wine with some spirit added, aged in wood for many years. But there, there's also some very um, fine um, Reserva Speciales and Stravecchios, older um, uh, versions which which have sort of ingredients added to it to uh, maybe uh, uh, enrich some of the sweetness and give it some nuances in the same way that a lot of fine sherries uh, have added uh, uh, ingredients like uh, 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 musts, which have been uh, stopped by the addition of alcohol, etc. Um, and so there are some really fine versions, but unfortunately, um, th- th- it's v- they're very hard to purchase here in the United States. You really have to really go to Sicily to find them. Uh, and a lot of the problem is that the our culture is less interested in these sort of uh, higher alcohol oxidized wine styles that uh, Marsala and, for example, Sherry or Madeira represent. But there are great versions to be found if one wants to uh, look for them. And let's talk about, since uh, we're, now we're getting to some uh, nitty-gritty wine stuff, um, for people who aren't familiar with Sicilian wine, I mean, what are the major indigenous grapes, uh, you know, red for red wines and white wines that, that you'll encounter that people should, should look out for? The major indigenous red and the, the red variety with, with which Italy is most associated is Nero Davola, which means basically the, uh, the, the black grape, Nero, from the city of Avila, uh, which, is, which is a port city uh, in uh, southeastern Sicily. Uh, and uh, really, southeastern Sicily is the, the locus where, where Nero Davila became established and became very important. But in the 1990s and early 2000s, it spread throughout Sicily as a whole. And that's really the most uh, noted red variety. Um, I think what it really lacks now is some interest in sp- uh, specific areas where um, Nero Davila wine is different, such as Pequino, such as Riesi, such as in the very center um, of, uh, of Sicily. Uh, for instance, there's an estate called Montoni, um, which makes a really fine, elegant um, uh, Nero Davila in the center of Sicily. So I, I think some regionality is needed there. Um, there's also another red, Norello Mascalese, which really is like Pinot Noir. It's sort of a cross between Pinot Noir and Nebbiolo. Um, uh, it, it has the structure more of Nebbiolo uh, and has some of the site sensitivity of both uh, Nero Davila, I mean, um, uh, uh, of... Uh, of Nebbiolo and Pinot Noir, and it's really only does well on the volcanic soils of, of Etna so far. Those are the two outstanding red varieties. And for white, an up-and-coming variety is Grillo, which makes the best base wines for Marsala and now is, is, is being planted throughout the island and makes some nice, rich, savory, um, slightly aromatic 
um, white wines. And I, I would just add in terms of red, there's a lovely red variety from the southeast area of Vittoria called Frappato, and it's one of two varieties used in a wine called Ceresuolo di Vittoria. And you can also find single varietal uh, Frappato today from estates like Valle della Casse or, or uh, Adriana, uh, Ariana Occupinti. I have to say that Frappato wines are probably some of my favorites that I drank. I just like the uh, the style and um, uh, the freshness of them. And, like, I think of them. I don't drink a lot of red wine in the summer, but Frappato or, or maybe Cherisuolo would be – those would be two on the list that I'd probably serve maybe with a little bit of a chill on them. I thought they were really delightful. Yeah, we do, too. They're lovely. Absolutely. Historically, Sicily was, was famous for sweet white wines. And in that light, of course, when we were in – uh, Lipari and Selena. Um, we tasted Malvasia della de Lipari, um, which is a, uh, a wine made from dried Malvasia grapes. Uh, and uh, it's uh, very spicy and uh, really fine for dessert. And then another great one certainly would be, comes from the island of Pantelleria, and that's made with the Moscato grape, and that's Moscato di Pantelleria. And, and uh, it's the dried, uh, really concentrated version is called Pasito di Pantelleria. And uh, because this island is right off the coast of Africa, Tunisia, um, the hot winds from the, uh, uh, from the Sahara Desert really desiccate these uh, grapes, and you get a very unctuous, uh, concentrated wine that really is quite singular. And, and the Italian name for that grape is beautiful. It's of uh, Arab derivation, Zabibbo. And, and, you know, I think as this discussion shows, just the world of, of vine varieties that are indigenous to Sicily and the diversity of growing areas helps to explain um, the title that we chose, The World of Sicilian Wine. Yeah, I have to mention those uh, Zabibbo wines. Um, I had a few dry examples, which I thought were really astonishing because they had all the wonderful kind of floral, pretty aromatics that you yeah, you want in Moscato, but they were just really refreshing and, and not sugary and sweet and all. They're definitely a kind of a stereotype breaker for me. Yeah, Marco de Bartoli on the island of Pantelleria makes a, a great one called Pietra Nera, and uh, there's also Ligea from Donna Fugata, which is a, a lower price point. Uh, I think those are two good examples of uh, excellent Zabibbo wine. Yeah. Let's go back to Mount Etna because that uh, is a, seems to be a place that's really it's, – it's very – uh, you know, trendy for sommeliers. They're in love with uh, Mount Etna and wines from the Etna region. Um, can you kind of transport me there? I mean, I, I got to visit there a few years ago, but sort of the landscape for, uh, you know, vine, growing vines uh, there, it's, it's uh, I mean, it's literally, you know, it's on, a, it's on a volcano. And what is that terrain like and how is it, how is it unique? Well, it's the tallest mountain south of the Alps. So you can find any elevation that you want and, and, and sort of, uh, and if, if it's warm enough to grow any kinds of plants, you can cultivate plants for that particular elevation. So you have all these different gradations of elevations to choose from, and typically wine grapes will grow up to about 1,200 meters in elevation. And so at 1,200 meters, you can make wines which are like, uh, the, uh, which come from the foothills of the Alps, virtually fresh, lively, sour wines. Um, and uh, you can also pick any exposition you want. Typically, most of the expositions are north, east and south. The western exposition has, has, hasn't been really used um, because it's 
away from major cities, hard to get to, and from a temperature standpoint, gets the hot evening sun, um, which can burn uh, grape skins more easily. So, um, and the, the third factor is the fact that the whole mountain, which is huge, it's absolutely enormous. It covers probably about, you know, one-fifth of the island. It's so huge that um, it's, it's been created by different specific lava flows. And each lava flow, lava flow has um, very unique chemical components. Um, so it's, it's the perfect uh, under landscape for terroir-driven wines. In other words, wines that come from specific subsoils in a way that I don't think even Burgundy can match. So you put all these factors together, um, you put a grape variety, Nerella Mascalese, which, uh, uh, like Nebbiolo and Pinot Noir, is very site-sensitive, and you have the makings of a, of a, a great terroir, a specific red wine. And what's so fascinating, Jameson, is that this was understood even at the time of Homer, as we were talking about earlier. In Homer's Odyssey, Mount Etna is described as this wildly fertile place that's ideally suited for, for vines, and that they grow on their own, even without an established culture of wine. And, and this Greek geographer in the late first century BC described how the volcanic soil on Etna was ideally suited to the growing of vines more than in other areas of the island. And so that's really fascinating in our own research. We found this kind of consistent understanding going back to the 8th century BC that this was a magical place to, to grow grapes and make wine. And Fran, I, I love the historical background you bring, and I know you have a background in uh, medieval and, and Renaissance studies. I was wondering if you could talk about how um, that background came to bear on the book and what, what was Sicily like in, in those medieval and Renaissance times as far as wine with culture. Well, absolutely. Well, as I said, our first trip to Sicily together was in 2008, and we were really stunned how the what we discovered was at, at great... I guess, odds with the popular cultural and historical narratives we've talked about earlier. So in deciding to write this book, we thought we must give uh, Sicily the kind of cultural and historical foundation. And so from the classical period through the Middle Ages and Renaissance, we really told the story of, of the evolution of agriculture through the prism of wine in Sicily. And I would say kind of two critical inflection points. First in the Middle Ages was the arrival of the Muslims to be followed by the Normans. And that was the period during which the Sicilian agriculture flourished. I would say wine flourished to a lesser extent under Muslim rule, but agriculture as a whole and intensive cultivation of fruits and olives not flourished as it did under the, the Normans. And in the later period, after the fall of the Normans, you had various foreign powers. In the period that the kind of the city-states of central and northern Italy were beginning to flourish and emerge from this kind of dark ages, Sicily really fell into its own dark ages. And we, in fact, call it this wine dark ages, to use a term from Homer's Odyssey. Wine dark was a term to use to, to describe the sea. And so while, of course, vines continued to be planted, it was a period when Sicily's agriculture devolved because through these succeeding foreign powers, there was more 
more emphasis on kind of extensive cultivation of grain, which was a simple commodity, hard durum wheat, as opposed to wine grapes. Um, and so it was really an essential in telling the story of the evolution, devolution, and then, of course, Bill tells the story from the 19th century on, really the rebirth of a proto-modern wine qual um, culture at the end of the 19th century, and then its rebirth beginning in the 1980s. Yeah. Um, and Bill, I also wanted to ask you about um, your work as a wine educator at uh, Boston University. Um, can you talk about what you do, what you teach? And because um, that's something, uh, hey, when I was in college, I, that wasn't an option available to me. So I'm really curious about um, your work doing that. Okay. Uh, yeah, Boston at Boston University, we have a program uh, which has many levels. Um, at the moment, we have four, but uh, this this uh, we have um, not only students from the university uh, attending these uh, uh, programs, which are both undergraduates and graduate students, but also consumers and members of the trade. And it uh, the first two levels are basically introductory, uh, and then the third level is really uh, uh, more like a laboratory course where the students uh, collaborate and learn from each other, uh, learn how to taste wine and blind taste uh, in ways which break down uh, the barriers which are created uh, because there really aren't any good uh, uh, schools or ways to learn how to um, really refine and educate your ability to uh, uh, perceive wine and record it in your memory so that you can re-identify it again. It's really a, a very difficult to master skill that, that we teach there. Um, but we also, we also, you know, in level three, for instance, talk about food wine pairing, the business of wine, and um, uh, viticulture and vinification. Then we have an upper level course, which is a, a business course and a communication course about wine and how to communicate wine tasting and, and talk about complex issues. And I also teach a vinification course and a hands-on vinification course. So uh, it's, it's an evolving program. It's exciting. It's uh, relative to uh, the U.S. market and the local market as well as dealing with uh, uh, present uh, important issues in the wine trade. Yeah, that's uh, that sounds like a great opportunity for people to uh, learn about wine, and um, uh, I, I would take a class if I uh, if I was out on the East Coast. Um, one of the other things that you have uh, as sort of a partner to the book is your uh, your website, your blog, uh, the World of Sicilian Wine, and that's at the World of Sicilian Wine Blogspot.com. And I was looking at today, and you posted a video uh, from from the Sicilian premiere trip, and uh, it was really interesting because. Uh, they asked a bunch of journalists who were there to you know, talk about Sicily, like Sicilian wine in one word. And um, once I got over my disappointment of not being asked to be on the video, uh, I just enjoyed your answers, which were, um, and I'm joking when I said I was disappointed. Um, Bill, you, Bill, when you talked about um, Sicilian wine, the one word you used was diversity. And Fran, you talked about, you said identity. Uh, can each of you kind of explain why you chose those words and um, in the, give me some context and background on that? Sure. Uh, in terms of diversity, uh, because of the enormous uh, climactic 
uh, and soil differences uh, and cultural differences too throughout the island, uh, you get um, wines which are very, very different from each other. And for instance, it's, it's pretty easy to do a blind tasting of, of red uh, varietal wines from Sicily because varieties like Norella Mascalese, Nero d'Avola, Frappato, uh, are very different. Are very have very very different profiles, and they're very easy to um, pick out. Um, at the moment, the white varieties are developing more. Um, there are there are numerous ones, but uh, but having this triad of three red varieties is is quite unusual. There's a lot of similarity of uh, of of red wines if you blind taste wines from. Um, the Italy mainland area. It's not so easy in a blind tasting, for instance, uh, to tell the difference between a Sangiovese and uh, a Nebbiolo. Uh, not as easy as one would think, um, and an Alianico. But to go to Sicily, you have these stark differences in, in wine style that vary from area to area. Fran? And Jameson, the reason I chose the word identity is because as we tell um, the story in the world of Sicilian wine, for centuries, uh, Sicilian wine um, really was uh, a commodity, and it was shipped to northern locations, both in Italy and France, and used as a cutting wine. And really, it was unseen and unidentified as being something that was a, a, a fruit of Sicily. And in, it, in addition, Sicily, having been ruled and conquered by so many foreign peoples, for centuries was long denied its identity. And so with the rebirth of the Sicilian wine industry, Sicilian wine producers were first compelled to prove to the outside world that they were capable of producing quality wines. So they initially planted star international varieties like Chardonnay and Cabernet Sauvignon and, and Syrah and were selling those wines. And it's really only been in the last 10, 15 years that they have begun to understand and embrace their indigenous varieties and make wines that express the identity of Sicily in all its uniqueness and all its diversity, much in the same way that Sicily's great authors of the 20th century, like Luigi Pirandello or Salvatore Quasimodo or Leonardo Shasha, were recognized on the world stage, including with two Nobel laureates, those first two authors, as being capable of expressing a place that had a very unique identity. And so I, I think we conclude our book by saying, really, that those writers and storytellers have been a powerful kind of role model for Sicily's wine growers who are giving Sicily a, a beautiful and rich identity today. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess finally, I'm curious to know from both of you, when did you get to a point where you decided, um, you know what, we love Sicily so much that we're going to write a book about it? Can you tell me like when you had that aha moment of, of deciding we're going to write a book? Uh, I'm just curious to hear about, uh, you know, like you have so much passion for Sicily that you decide to embark on this uh, journey of uh, writing a book about it. Yeah. In, in 2008, I had to write an article for Sante magazine about Sicily. And I'm half Sicilian um, by origin, by ancestry, and I'd, I'd been there three times before, but I hadn't really got the sense of the place. So, uh, it, you know, I, I always love to travel with, with Fran because I, I enjoy not only seeing places and 
through my own eyes, but also through hers and experiences. So we went together on our own, and we went around the island, and we were just um, fascinated. Um, I think I think the people uh, and the products really spoke to us, and we saw we felt something important, uh, and uh, uh, so the idea began to germinate. And I would say, as we discussed at the outset of our conversation, what we discovered was this reality that that was so at odds with the popular cultural narrative from Homer's time that Sicily was a place peopled by, you know, uh, um, indigenous uh, people who didn't value their land and its fruits. Jameson, we experienced something that I had never experienced on, in any other place on the wine road, and I had traveled all around Europe and South America and Australia and New Zealand. Wherever we went in Sicily, beginning really with the island of Salina, then Etna, all around the island, we would inevitably be shown kind of by a wine producer there are other fruit trees, and they would insist that we try fruits. And, and it really was clear that, in fact, this was a place that um, that – uh, people who lived there were deeply attached to their land and its fruits. And we thought that's the story we must tell because it really is, a, is, is the, the story that is so lacking in, in the kind of the story that's been told for centuries. Fantastic. Well, Fran and Bill, thank you both for uh, being on the show. And uh, uh, I encourage everyone to pick up a copy of The World of Sicilian Wine and keep up with uh, your adventures on your site at theworldofsicilianwine.blogspot.com. And don't forget to check out jamesthink.com. And you can also find my work over at Grape Collective. Um, I think you're really going to uh, whet people's appetite and thirst for exploring Sicily and Sicilian wine. And it really is, I mean, the book is so aptly titled, there really is a, a world of Sicilian wine to explore. So thank you both very much for being on the show. Jameson, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure and privilege to be with you and your loyal listeners of Wine Without Worry. Thanks again. Thank you, Jameson.